If uh, we haven't had the chance to meet, my name's Danny. And um, so I wear glasses. Now, I wear glasses because I know that on my own, I cannot trust my own vision. Fair? That makes sense, right? Like ever since I was eight years old, all the way up until now, uh, I know that my vision is not the best. So I know I can't trust my vision. I mean, imagine if, if the world really went the way my, my vision goes. Like, as I just go from eight on, I'm like, I think the world's just getting blurrier. Like, everything's just blurry all the time. And by the time I'm 16 behind the wheel of a car, good luck. Uh, like, it would be scary, right? Because I know that I can't trust my vision. And so I go to optometrists and they give me a prescription for new glasses because I can't trust my vision. I can't trust my vision because my vision is not trustworthy. Now, when I think of what makes someone good or righteous, I have my own personal vision for that. It's informed by how I was raised, some, the media I consume, the community that surrounds me, the things and the stories I believe and internalize. And so that's my natural vision about what makes something good or bad, righteous or unrighteous. Now I imagine you do the same. You have your own checklist for what makes someone good or bad. It's informed by a number of different cultural influences you either consciously or subconsciously take in, and they help you to make sense of the world around you, to be able to call whether something is good or bad. Now tonight, we finish a sequence of three interconnected stories uh, in, the, in the book of Second uh, Peter that surrounds the theme of God's gracious justice. And we've wrestled with the difficult tension of God's vision of justice versus our vision of justice. That even when it doesn't seem like God is working to beat about, bring about justice, that God is actively working out justice in the background. That even when it seems like God's justice is destroying life, we actually, we can look closer. And what we begin to understand is that what his justice is truly do, doing is it is preserving life. And so tonight we move on to the final story in this sequence of three. And it's again going to bring us to the point of understanding God's justice in the midst of planet death. But still within each of us is the desire to use our own vision for justice, that we get to judge what is right for ourselves and for everyone else around us. And so now having an individualized understanding of what is just can be helpful because it can make us active participants. In other words, it can make it where we don't just live as patsies who follow utterly absurd instructions without a mind, right? Like bad decisions throughout the course of history have happened because people just were like, yeah, they told me to do it. So I, I went and did it. But here's the tricky part. It also produces anxiety, pride, self-righteousness because what it does is it makes each and every one of us our own arbiter of justice. I sit as judge, jury, and executioner of myself and of everyone else around me, which might sound really empowering in a way. And that's what our world around us tells us. Like you get to decide. You get to decide. The only, the, the tricky part though, is what happens if another person who also gets to decide has a greater capacity to bring other people around to their way of thinking. They have a bigger platform than you. Well, now what do you do? Because now 
that can produce anxiety of inferiority. What happens if that is used against me? Or maybe you're the person who can get people around you and your thinking is in line with whatever is a popular or desirous, but that can also tempt us to arrogance and superiority. And so just as I had to come to an understanding early on in life that my vision wasn't so good, we need to examine, is my vision of goodness and badness so good? Is, is, can I trust my own vision of good and bad over God's? But even better, even more important, should I even want to? Should I want to trust my own desire over God's? My own vision over God's? And so this is what we're stepping into tonight in this passage. In 2 Peter chapter 2, we're going to be in verses 6 through 9 tonight. Now, Peter gives the final of the three interconnected stories surrounding the concept of God's justice, but it's important to remember the context that we had discovered about it. See, there were false teachers within the life of the early church who were spreading distorted views of God. They were living and acting in whatever way seemed best to them in their moment. They were living in accordance with their own vision. They were pulling others in under the belief that God will never bring ultimate justice and therefore, you and I and the person next to you, we can each do what is right in our own eyes with our own vision. And so to that, Peter turns to a third story from the book of Genesis. So 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 6 through 9. If, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Let's pause there. Okay. Now, if you're like me, you're like, Pete, why are you using this story? Like, this is one of those, like, can we just not, can we not go there? Be and, and that makes sense, especially in our cultural context, because a story like this has a lot of cultural baggage that ends up getting thrown onto it across the centuries. But, but if you hang with me, what, what I believe you're going to discover is this is actually a story of God's gracious justice. Now, if you're not familiar with the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, it's found in the, um, in the first book of the Bible, Genesis, uh, in chapters 17 and 18, we get all of this content. So if you want to kind of fact check me and go through the scripture, what I'm going to do now is I'm going to kind of share with you the story of what unpacks in this story. Now, there's an important figure in, in the scriptures. His name is Abraham. And Abraham eventually becomes the father of the nation of Israel. And uh, and. Abraham has a nephew, a guy named Lot, who Peter calls righteous here. Now, he loved Lot. He didn't have a son of his own at the time, so he treated Lot as his son. He guided him. He mentored him. He, uh, they, were, they were a nomadic people group, so they had employees and others who um, were around them, and they would kind of go together all throughout the wilderness journey. Now, they also had 
um, livestock and herds, especially of sheep, and all these animals needed to graze somewhere. And so when they would all move together in this huge pack, it was starting to deplete resources quickly, leading to frictions between their workers. Their shepherds were starting to fight with one another, eventually leading to frustration between Lot and Abraham because their caravans needed more room. And so they come together and they're like, hey, I think it's time for us to separate our two groups and you go one way and I go the other way. But Abraham, with his deep love for Lot, he says, Lot, you get to pick. If you go to the left hand, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Whichever way you, you, get, you get to pick the first shot. And Lot picks land that is beautiful in his own eyes. It's actually so beautiful that the scriptures describe it as reminding him of the garden found in Eden. So you get this image that he saw what looked good to him. And so he looked at what was good in his own eyes and immediately he begins to make his way there. But he doesn't go to live in the garden. He goes to live in a city. It says he immediately like detours in the land towards Sodom. And Sodom, even at this point in the scriptures, we're not even fully in the story yet. It describes Sodom as a place where the men were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Now, eventually, God comes to Abraham over a period of time and a few angelic messengers come with the Lord and and they take Abraham to an overlooking cliff overlooking the city of Sodom. And God begins to do something that's kind of interesting. We'll read this together and you can see how interesting this is. But he begins to uh, talk to himself in front of Abraham about Abraham. And, he, and he's doing this and you get this image that what he is doing is he, is he is letting Abraham know not just what he's doing, but how he perceives it, how he's thinking about it. He's, he's, it's like he's like a good dad instructing Abraham how to perceive of this moment and what kind of God he actually is. And so in Genesis chapter 18, verses 16, it says this. Then the men, the angelic messengers set out from there and they looked down toward Sodom and Abraham went with them to see them on their way. And the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. In other words, you get this image of beauty right here, right? That's a great question. Like Abraham, I'm gonna use him in some wonderful ways. He's gonna be a blessing to the entirety of humanity through his lineage. This is, should, should I let him know what's gonna happen next? And he lets him know. And he says, for I have chosen him and that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Okay. And so then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So God explains that there's an outcry that is coming up to him from these two cities. And when you first read that, or uh, if you're like me, first inclination is to, to perceive that, oh, there, there's some people, like some innocent people in these towns who have been crying out to God. But it's actually not what our imaginations are meant to be captured by because this is the exact same language that is used in another part, an earlier part of Genesis. All the way in Genesis chapter four, there is a story of Adam and Eve's first two children, Cain and Abel. And Cain, 
Cain and Abel both bring an offering before Yahweh. And when they bring their offerings, God accepts the offering of Abel and sees it with favor and sees it firstly with favor. And with Cain's, not so much. And we don't really find out why. But what we find out so quick is that when God warns Cain, look, there's a beast within you. It's your sinful heart and it's gonna wanna do what is right in its own eyes. Don't do it. Run, run from the beast within. Don't do it. And he doesn't listen. Instead, he takes the life of his brother Abel. It's the first murder recorded in the scriptures. And at that point, it says that there, that there was an outcry from the blood of Abel towards God. So this outcry is the outcry of, a, of, of injustice taking place on a planet of death. It is a begging for justice. The blood of Abel cried out for justice. And in Sodom and Gomorrah, there's a outcry, a spiritual outcry for justice. And so out of that, Abraham, he, he humbly comes to God and he says to him, God, you're, you're powerful. You know what's going on here. But I also know your character is really merciful if there were 50 righteous people in this city, would you still destroy it? And God says, I will not. And then Abraham goes, okay, 45. Same, 40. Yep, 30, still yes. 20, absolutely. 10, no problem. And so then the angelic messengers, they take off and they go towards the city. And what we see in this, though, is God's incredible patience and his desire to demonstrate grace in the midst of the outcry for justice. And so the two angelic messengers, they head into Sodom to go and to examine the city up close and personal, trying to figure out what's going on. Is this outcry real? What's, what's happening? They want to really know. Now, God knows everything, but also we see his desire to get up close and personal to reality. And who should they meet at the gates? lot. And just as Abraham had once welcomed these messengers at the entrance to his camp, now Lot is doing the exact same at the gate of Sodom. And he begs them to come and stay over at his house. Like, let's go have a sleepover. It'll be great. Um, you come over. Uh, you can eat my food. Uh, you, we'll take care of you. We'll get you washed up. It'll be great. And now that sounds really hospitable and it is. And actually it makes sense because uh, this is an ancient Near Eastern culture where hospitality is so, such a focus. And then even more so, Abraham was his uncle and Abraham is known for his hospitality and his kindness in a number of ways. And so we see Lot being hospitable. And so this, this feels great. It's kind of like when you're watching a movie and it seems like everything's going great, except... You know, when you're watching a movie and everything looks to be going great and then the music changes, nothing else has changed, but the music did. And the music told you everything you needed to know. The music's telling you like, uh-oh. And you're like, oh no. And so that's this moment because Lot knows what's going on. So his, no, 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 seriously, you're come, you need to come with me. See, Lot was now well aware of this city that he was living in, that this was a city that was spiritually dead at heart, like all of humanity, but they have taken it to the nth degree with utter destruction set upon itself, that this, that this city is where brokenness was championed and anyone could do what was right in their own vision. 
And so Peter comments about this story, right? He said that Lot was greatly distressed by their sensual conduct. In fact, he says that he lived among them day by day. He was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. In other words, Lot knew the city well. He knew that it was broken. He knew, he knew that nothing good was going to come towards these individuals. But what we also understand, and Peter gives context in the thing that his soul was tormented, that his moral compass was being skewed. It's a classic example of what grandma told you, bad company corrupts good character. Like that is what's been happening here. And my, now my personal curiosity, complete side note is why didn't Lot just leave? I mean, why would you take your wife and your two daughters into this place? It just seems like maybe don't do that, right? Why keep himself in this place? And we don't get the image that Lot went there because he was like, I'm going to go do some good here. I'm going to run for the city council and I'm going to really like bring about some change. I'm going to proclaim the way of Yahweh. It's going to be good. We don't get any of that from the story. Instead, he stood by and lived in this city that told him and everyone else around him that they could do whatever was right according to their own vision. And all this soon comes to a head when some of these morally bankrupt men in the city begin pounding on Lot's door and they want the men. They want these angelic messengers. They, They want to sexually attack these two angelic messengers. Now let's pause there. Because this is super interesting. This is an inverted hyperlink towards an earlier story that we talked about a few weeks ago. The story of the origins of the flood narrative. When we talked about this, like, I know this is getting to some weird stuff, right? But what, what is going on is that before the flood, there were angelic messengers of God who had rebelled against God. And it says in the scriptures that they looked upon the women, the daughters of man, saw that they were good, took them for their own and conceived children with them. And now you have the sons of men see these two spiritual beings who, are, who haven't abandoned God and they see that they want them. They want to take them and they are attempting to do whatever it takes to get them. And so what we get is this image that what they are about is utterly evil. It's like the old, it's like a concentrated, it's like the 24 hour energy shot. Are those still around? Like, it's like that kind of thing of utter brokenness. Like, in other words, they're doing what demons do. And so they're doing whatever's right in their own eyes. And Lot rightfully tries to protect these messengers. That sounds righteous, right? And so he's ta- he, he puts himself out there. He steps, step out the door, closes the door behind him and stands there to talk to them. That sounds like a good thing to do, right? Decent house guest move. But then with his skewed moral compass, he does the utterly unimaginable and he offers up his own daughters in their place. Not righteous, right? Now, thankfully, the men don't accept the trade. And so then the the angelic messengers step in and they uh, do this miraculous escape situation um, for Lot and his family. And when when they get out of trouble, uh, the, the messengers tell Lot that Sodom is about to receive utter justice and be destroyed. And, and even then, you know what it says about Lot? It said, he, and he still lingered. What is this guy doing? Like, you don't know, like why? 
And so the angels literally, it says in the scriptures, they took them, him and his family by the arm and took them out of the city. Wild story, yeah? And the Spirit leads Peter to use this story to teach about God's justice. See, God's justice on the unrighteousness and God's justice on the righteous. Now, does Lot seem very righteous to you? No, there's, there's an answer to that. It's just no. Like he, he's not like that. You look at this, you're like, no. I mean, at least he's a bad dad, right? Like uh, morally rehem, rehem, I'll keep going. Uh, dad, he's like, as far as like following God, like doesn't, this isn't looking good for him. I mean, and now maybe, I mean, he seems a, better than a lot of other people in these cities, but still he's not a great human being either, right? So why is Peter referring to him as righteous? Was this just a comparison thing? Well, we get an image a few chapters before in Genesis where, where God is speaking to his uncle, Abraham, and he calls Abraham righteous. What an honor. God calls you righteous. And the next thing you know, just a few verses later, he takes a woman who is not his wife, but his slave, and he takes her into the bedroom to go and conceive a child. Why do you call him righteous? Like that's not righteous. It's broken. So why? The question is, why does God label what is clearly unrighteous? A clearly unrighteous person as righteous. Why, when somebody is clearly bad, would God ever label them good? And see, this is a largely unresolved question for centuries in the biblical story until one day, Jesus of Nazareth appears on the scene. See, Jesus is the only true human who is ever righteous. And that's because he wasn't just human. He was fully God. He was God in the flesh, God in the neighborhood. See, while every other human is bound to sin and death, filled with a zombified heart, bent on trusting our own vision over God's, Jesus was and is life, light, and freedom. And he was perfectly righteous, not by my standards, not by your standards. Quite frankly, it's an irrelevancy. The only standard that matters is God's. And God knew Jesus fully and meshed in the Trinity. And so when Jesus goes to the cross, the unrighteousness of mankind, the justice that we deserve gets put on him. And so in that moment, the great exchange occurs. Our death for his life. Now, Paul would end up talking, writing to the church in Rome about this unbelievable new righteousness that we receive, that our unrighteousness placed on Jesus and, our, and his perfect righteousness is now labeled on us. And so Paul writes about this to the church in Rome and he uses Abraham as an example. He says that Abraham and his offspring were counted as righteousness, as righteous, but how? They were unrighteous. Paul knew that. He knew how to read the Torah, but their righteousness was not from within themselves, but a trust and a faith that ultimately it is God who fulfills his promises. And even on that, they still, Abraham still struggles to trust God's promises. But that faith that he has in Yahweh is a faith that was given to him by God himself. And while that might still like right now, like, okay, 
Like that's kind of in the clouds or it's historical or theoretical. But in Romans chapter four, check this out. Romans chapter four, verse 22. Here's what it says. Now this is why his, Abraham's faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him. They were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in God, in him who raised from the dead, Jesus, our Lord, who is delivered up for our trespasses, our unrighteousness, and raised up for our justification to now be labeled righteous. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we also have access by faith into the grace in which we now stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. That's a lot, but that's really good news. Let's go back to the question. Why would God ever label an un, such an unrighteous person as righteous? Praise God. Because it's because of Jesus. Why can't he? Who, wh why would he? Because Lot is not righteous on his own terms, right? But I can't help but praise God for the example of Lot being called righteous. Because if God can label a man as twisted and as broken as Lot as righteous, then I can trust through faith in Jesus that I and you, we can be labeled as righteous. It doesn't matter how dirty you feel, how broken your past or your present the only thing that matters is what God says you are. You, when you follow Jesus, you do not have the right to label yourself. You don't have the rights over your own life and your story. It's your thoughts about you are no longer the most relevant thing about you. It's what God says about you. And see, this is what these false teachers in Peter's day who he's addressing needed to be reminded of that they put on their own vision for righteousness and, right, uh, and justice. They believed that they could say what was good or bad, but it's just a cheap knockoff of the real thing. They need to be reminded that, the un, that their understanding of justice and righteousness leads to death and only God's vision leads to life, light, and freedom. And so if God in the ancient past can demonstrate his justice and his grace over and over and over again, then. So let's go to verse nine now in 2 Peter. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and they despise authority. So what does that mean? What that means is we look back in the past and we know that God wins. His justice, his vision for good and bad is righteous and right. And that means today, God's justice will win. And it means ultimately in, a, in, in the future to come, when Jesus returns in full boldness, in full glory, God's justice will win. It's not even like a toss-up. It's not a close second kind of situation. It's not a battle between two, in, uh, two sides that are even near one another. And it means that for all those who now carry the label of righteous, we know that we don't carry that label because we're good. 
because we're good enough, but it's not because you have earned it. It's because of the actions of another, King Jesus on your behalf on the cross. And for all those who now carry the label of unrighteous, it's to know that it's not by their actions. It's not by their actions, but by simply a refusal of the faith and placing faith in the actions of King Jesus on the cross. It's the only thing that matters. Nothing else matters. And see, these false teachers needed to be reminded of these three interconnected stories. That God is just even when we don't see it. That God is just even when we don't understand it. That God is just even when we don't deserve it. And over all of these things, God is gracious. And praise God, he's gracious because you and I could never possibly deserve it. And so tonight, I want you to seriously consider this. Um, I've been praying this week for all of y'all who would be in this room tonight that um, that there would be some of us in this room, even tonight, who, who, who don't know or follow Jesus. You don't, you don't even think about God and this whole Jesus thing. But my hope is that by God's grace, that tonight the Spirit of God would be doing a new work in you to help bring about inside of you an awe for who he is and what he has done for you through Jesus. And if that's you, I want you to know and take away this. God loves you more than you could possibly imagine. So much so that it doesn't matter what you've done in the past. It doesn't matter what you did on the way here. It's about what Jesus has already done for you to have life. It doesn't matter what baggage is weighing you down, uh, what just feels insurmountable, because Jesus stands ready to help take your baggage and give you the baggage that is his righteousness. See, God's invitation for you and is to put your faith in Jesus, trusting that while you can't save yourself, Jesus can and will. And then what's even more insane is then for when those days when you're questioning it, you're like, oh man, I messed up again. God probably gave up on me. Well, the scriptures say that you are then instilled with the spirit of God. That is a down payment to the ultimate realization one day paid in full. It's a realization that you belong to him. You can't fight it. You've been adopted into his forever family and he now gives you hope and purpose beyond what you could possibly dare, dream, or imagine. And so if that's you, what I want to invite you to do tonight is if you came with somebody who you know loves and follows Jesus, I want you um, to talk to him about it, maybe on the way home in the car. If you, if you don't know anybody who knows and follows Jesus, um, we're going to have some prayer volunteers up here at the end of the gathering that would love to just chat with you. If you have questions, we'd love to be here to just talk with you through them, not to force you to do anything you're not ready for, anything that God isn't preparing you for, but to truly journey with you. And if that's you, I want you to know that you are not the only one who needs the gospel. I do. And the people sitting next to you in this room right now, they need the gospel. And so this is the same reminder each and every one of us need every single day that we are more loved than we could possibly know by the only true judge who has the right to call the shots.